Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, step right up. Behind this curtain lies a ghastly concoction of delight, horror, fantasy, and terror. Your every wish is our command. Your every whimsical desire brought to life. But I'm warning you, there's always a price. Welcome to the greatest show on Welcome back, fools and ghouls, ladies and germs, talking terror fans, nationwide and worldwide. Once again, we're back. It's talking terror time. This week, the Ghoul Geek presents us with his spooky pick of the week, The Conjuring from 2013, directed by James Wan. Looking forward to talking about that. A lot of things I have to say, so but I will cover it when we talk about the movie. Um, we're not going to be joined by the Demonic Doctor this week. I know it's his peak, uh, pick next week. We will announce it on the page on Monday. So we'll be without his opinions, unfortunately. I know he said that he wanted to talk about this movie, but unfortunately that gets in the way, as it often does, and he had to take the night off. But we are joined by the bold, the beautiful, the last Jedi himself. Gee. <laughs> so the demonic doctor is chronically <laughs> masturbating tonight, which is why he cannot be with us. So instead, no, I will step in. I will use his cadence at times very selectfully, and I will overextend explanations of everything as necessary just to do it for him. Hello, everybody. How you doing tonight? <laughs> yeah, I have to take at least five minutes to talk about one issue, though. That is the doc's way. So take five minutes to explain something that will take 30 seconds. That is his way. But we love him. Well, he's like, we do. He's like the Stephen King of our show, you know? He'll sit there and spend 10 minutes setting up the entire fucking scene, including, you know, color pal- palette, what type of shoes he was wearing at the time, you know, if he did or did not have underwear or masturbate earlier in that day. I mean, you know, details. I feel like it's necessary, Ghoul. But we are also joined, fresh out of the cage, out of tapioca. He's ready to go. The Mad Monkey. Welcome back, Monkey. <laughs> Hello. Keep us no more. Oh, okay. Right out of the cage. All right. Hello. Hi there. Hello. I am the Mad Monkey. Here to talk. <laughs> hey there, fright fans. This is this is your horror co-host, the Mad Monkey. Here to be joining my lovely co-host for another fun-filled, fright-filled episode of Talking Terror. Let's have at it, boys. Well, was that your version of the Doctor Monkey? <laughs> it sounded like it. it was. It was me trying. <laughs> he was going for it, but he couldn't hold in the laughter long enough to get through that impersonation. But we will let him try. But uh, the one thing I wanted sp- to say before we kick off. Uh, nope, nope, sorry about that. Hold, didn't mean to step on your toes. No, no, no. What are you kicking off with, man? Let's go. Let's do this shit. Uh, before we kick into the horror news, I do have a lot, to, a lot of items to talk about, especially since the doc isn't here. Usually he has 10,000 things to talk about, uh, which I love him for because it makes my job easier. Uh, it makes my job a lot easier, but I do have like seven or eight things I wanted to talk about. But first, I wanted to say that the Mad Monkey and I are embarking on a journey into The Perch, as we talked about two weeks ago. The USA yes, Network has their 10-episode series going on right now. Episode three premiered last night, so what the Monkey and I are doing we're going to watch every episode of this 10-episode series, and then once it concludes, uh, on air we'll talk about briefly our thoughts, 
what we thought about it, if there's going to be another season, uh, what we thought about the characters, setting, the whole damn thing. We're not going to take it week by week because uh, that would just take up too much time. So once the season uh, or series, as it is, concludes, we will give you our thoughts. We hope you're watching it, too. Uh, the Purge is definitely a series that if you haven't checked it out yet, you definitely should. And it's only just to hear our thoughts when it's done. Yeah, absolutely. You should be checking it out. Oh, what's that, cool? No, I have yet to see it. You know, I uh, I recently got Hulu, as uh, I was talking about last week, you know, trying to trade off uh, Sling, moving on from that, moving on to Hulu, trying out all these digital uh, television mediums. And, uh, yes, I having Hulu now, I was able to start to explore Castle Rock. And, uh, you know, I'm only an episode in, but it definitely piqued my interest. Okay, so that's a pretty good one so far, Castle Rock. Yeah, yeah, but, but, yeah a, lot um, of, uh, a lot of uh, stuff right out the gate for it, so. Great. <laughs> no, and ahead, like Mickey. the King said, though, no, I was going to say, like the King said, though, if you are a fan of the uh, movies and you are not sure, I would highly suggest just checking it out. The King and I are having actually a fun time watching this, and it's, it's got some interesting story arcs and some fun storylines, so... You know, definitely put it in your DVR, give it give it a, a view, and then listen to us. And once the series has concluded, <laughs> to get up, so we can let you know our opinions about the series. Yes, indeed. Uh, so to pick up what I have, there is one thing I wanted to talk about. But I'm actually going to wait until the doc comes back next week uh, because it is a movie that I think you would want to have his input on. So I'm going to skip over that and go to Halloween 2018. It's coming out in a couple weeks. Uh, October 19th, the movie comes out. There's been plenty of new trailers with new footage. Uh, John Carpenter just dropped the title track called The Shape Returns today, which is on the Facebook page for you guys if you want to check it out. But the one thing I wanted to bring up is that earlier in the week there was an article by David Gordon Green who had said his original intention to open the new movie was to recreate the ending of Halloween 1978 when Michael gets shot six times, falls out of the balcony, he wanted to redo it so it would fit into this new narrative that he's planning on telling. So he was going to have uh, CGI Loomis. He was going to have a stand-in for Loomis for overhead shots. He was also going to have Jenny Lee Curtis um, CGI body double type thing to represent her from 1978. So he could basically redo the ending of this so it could fit into his movie. John Carpenter said, don't do that. It's not necessary. Let the people figure it out. Just open the movie that way that you should think it should open. So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Do you think that would have been a good idea for them to redo the finale of Halloween 1978? Do you think John Carpenter was right in saying, do your own thing, let everybody else figure it out? Go ahead, Joel. I'm with Carpenter on this one. You know, um, I mean, not knocking what they've done with CGI and whatnot. Um, you know, we saw that with uh, Leia in the Rogue One movie when they, they kind of, you know, brought her back younger, at, you know, for the, the beginning of A New Hope. Um, we saw it with, uh, you know, Grand Moff Tarkin, yep. Peter Cushing in that film as yep. well. Uh, it, it can be done, I think, obviously, if you, if you analyze it a little closely or with these newer televisions, you can kind of see that the people are fake, you know, where they're using a body double, but they're, they're then CGI-ing, you know, the, the younger or the, the deceased actor or actress onto the, uh, onto the body. Um, I don't think it's necessary, though. You know what? I don't want to see 
ending of that film. I know the ending of that movie. You know, I want this film to open where we're at right now. You know, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see the past. I want to see where we are presently. Mm-hmm. Right, Monkey, what do you think? Yeah, and I agree with the ghoul is we don't need to be, you know, have our hands held and walk into the next movie or recap or whatever. Just, you know, if you're going to go, I'm sorry, when you go check this movie out, yes, by all means, watch the original Halloween movie and then enjoy this new movie that I'm hoping is going to be as awesome as the trailers look. But we do not need to have our hands held throughout the entire process of transitioning into this new movie. No. And we don't um, need I mean, things in this idea. movie reminding us how much we love that first movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I find that with especially with like the Star Wars movies, the most recent ones, as much as I enjoy mm. the little bit of callback and whatnot when it's there, when it's there subtly, I enjoy it. But when it's there right in my face and, you know, like so little things about I just watched the, the Solo movie this past weekend. And there were a lot of things about that movie that surprisingly I enjoyed. I really ended up having a lot of fun with that film. And um, I can't say it enough. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know, I know there was all this bullshit about trouble on the set and this and that. It's terrible. It's a bad movie. You know what? Don't listen. Go watch it and make your own fucking opinion because I really like the damn thing. Um... But, you know, there were specific scenes, specific things that came up that was like, hey, remember when you liked this? Well, here it is again. And, you know, I don't need that. You know, if I want that, I'm going to watch that original film. And if you're constantly reminding me about how much I enjoyed that first film or the first set in the series, I'm not going to watch your movie. I'm going to go back and watch those movies. (laughs) and to me, like, I was talking to the monkey about this last night. I said it's an interesting theory. Like, I liked where his head was at, like coming up with this idea of how to formulate a, a revisioning of the original ending to include CGI Wilmus. I thought that idea was kind of hokey. But you know, in a way, it's kind of an interesting theory. Do I think that I sh- they should have done it? Absolutely not, and I'm glad that they didn't. But I think it's a fun idea to kind of reimagine the ending so it fits this new narrative. But like the ghoul had said, I think there's going to be enough in this movie that's going to take you back to that original one, that they don't really need to redo anything. They could just make it the way it is, and I think we're still going to love it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah. I know everybody's anticipating that October 19th date as much as I am. Uh, but, yeah, I thought that was an interesting piece. Um, to switch gears a little bit, uh, I wanted to talk about Venom, which comes out on October 5th. Uh, so that's going to be coming out a couple weeks early. Uh, it is rated PG-13. It is no longer rated oh, man. The NCAA has made the decision that it's going to be rated PG-13. Uh, Ruben Fleischer, who directed it, is happy with the decision because he said if it's going to be rated PG-13, he's willing to push the limits of gore and violence as much as he can, uh, so it's not quite in our territory. But they're planning on this being the setup for a Sony Dark Universe, uh, which would eventually feature Silk, uh, Nightwatch, uh, Carnage um, and other uh, various villains, you know, in the universe. But they're not quite connecting it to Spider-Man. So the question is of whether or not Spider-Man is going to make an appearance in this dark yeah. universe. But I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on a PG-13 rating because it seems like that's the way a lot of movies go nowadays. It seems like it's a lot easier to get a PG-13 than an R. When I really do feel like Venom should be an R. I think it should be an adult R because there's plenty of violence to have. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, no, I, I completely agree with you here, King. It's like this, this is, you know, Venom is not a kid storyline, even though Venom has shown up in lots of Spider-Man cartoons and, you know, other crappier Spider-Man movies. Um, <laughs> um, no, but I think this one, especially if you're going to sit there and say that you want to create a Sony dark universe, you know, how dark are you going to get with PG-13? You know, t- take that mm-hmm. extra step and, and just go into R because you and I had talked about this because they were talking about bringing back Blade, bringing, back Mor- uh, bringing in Mor- Morbius, you know, going the, the route of, I think the storyline goal was Midnight Suns, you know, so... Yes. Yeah, yep. so if you're going to try and tap back into all that stuff, don't be afraid to work with Deadpool and just go the rated R route. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the reality is this. I mean, we're talking about comic book characters, you know, so regardless of where we as horror fans or we as even the comic book fans looked at those characters, the reality is, is, you know, in those original series, you didn't see all this gore and crazy stuff. That's, you know, what we've kind of created in our own imaginations with it, and maybe stuff that got added later down the road for said characters. Um, I think, you know, it, 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 <laughs> I hate all this fucking, oh, we're going to make a dark universe. Hey, we're going to make a universe. <laughs> really fucking tired of it, man. You know what? I, I got an idea. Just make a fucking movie. How about that? Yeah. And here's a, a second idea for you. Make one that's fucking good. Um, you know, obviously the, the main reason to go PG-13 is to make a broader audience. You know, plain and simple. Oh, yeah. Get, uh, oh, yeah. They get more people. You know, if you can put more butts in the seats, it means more revenue for the company, and, you know, that's that's that. Uh, as far as them not bringing in Spider-Man, I mean, I think that has everything to do with, obviously, the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now, and the characters position, positioning within that. I think as the contracts move along, and that contract ends, if this, you know, dark universe is successful, we will see the, you know, the fucking friendly neighborhood Spider-Man make maybe a darker appearance, finally. Um, Or at least his appearance will be felt in this universe. But it all depends on if this is successful or not. Um, You know, the the other thing is, is with DVD and digital these days, sure, they'll put it out in PG-13 and then they'll release an unrated cut. And that'll have whatever, you know, couple of seconds of gore that got cut out by the MPAA, if, you know, if that's what happened, and go from there. Yeah, and I think it's, it's most interesting that they're not involving Spider-Man uh, in this Venom movie. They're kind of doing their own thing with the origin of Eddie Brock becoming Venom. And I think that's what's attracting me the most. It's not like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, uh, as horrific of a train wreck as that movie is, uh, it's not attaching itself to Peter Parker and Spider-Man and the symbiote at all. It's kind of doing its own thing. And that's what's attracting me. That's what makes me want to see the movie. Just to see how they do it. Um, create this character without having it be attached to Spider-Man in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead, man. No, no, no. That's all you. No, no. 
<laughs> no, I was I was just gonna say that I'm just glad though that they're finally t- taking the character of Eddie Brock and actually doing him right, and we have a built guy, you know, because that's why Venom is so big is he's based on the <laughs> structure of Eddie Brock instead of skinny ass Topher Grace, you know. <laughs> he was a good Eddie Brock. He just wasn't a good Venom. That's that's what I take away from Spider-Man what? Three. I thought he did okay as Eddie Brock. Oh wow, he man! He was whining. I'm, I'm, he was just I'm whining. I'm gonna like pretend I didn't hear you say that. Was. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I didn't Everyone. mind him as Eddie Brock. It was only when he came to Venom I just had a problem. I said, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> had a big problem with Venom, but Eddie Brock was Eddie Brock. You know, just jealous constantly of Peter Parker and how well he was doing. And I thought Topher Grace did an okay job. I didn't mind it. Uh, okay. So <laughs> I know Monkey's gonna, you know, oh, I don't worry, but yeah, that's fine. I mean, that that's like I said, my my opinion of the whole thing. But I, I'm I hated that movie movie. completely. So I just it, I, well, yeah, I, I don't have anything good to say yeah. about it. I mean, I don't blame Sam Raimi for that one either. I kind of blame the studio for kind of putting him in a corner. You know, he had ideas for Spider-Man Three that they didn't like, so they just said, ah, you know, the kids love Venom. Um, they they like the Sandman too, so have them be in there. And hey, what about the Hobgoblin? We need to have that in there. It's putting let's throw everybody in there. Yeah, <laughs> hey, Gwen Stacy will show up too. Like, it's having too many at one time is not a good idea. Um, too many villains in one movie just isn't a good idea. And I think that's a lot of what the problems were with Spider-Man Three. Not even the Jazz Hands, Peter Parker. That hey, wasn't even the yeah. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say, hey, you know what else this movie needs? A dance sequence. It does. Jazz hands is pretty bad, man. Jazz hands is pretty bad. So that was a pretty pretty dark, uh, you know, moment for the uh, the Spider-Man movies to have Peter Parker do the uh, the jazz. Emo movie. Parker, dude. <laughs> Hello, my baby. Parker. Hello, my darling. Hello, my red yeah. <laughs> it, it was close enough. But to to branch from Venom, and we're doing comic book talk a little bit tonight because I know that the doc doesn't read them, doesn't really like those movies. So I wanted to kind of branch into those. And I wanted to talk about The Joker, uh, the movie that's going to be coming out next year, starring Joaquin Phoenix in the role as The Joker. Uh, I had shared on my personal Facebook page uh, a week footage from the set of Joaquin Phoenix as The Joker. Uh, what surprised people the most is that he is not yet in the green hair, white skin, red lip grin that we know him as. He's uh, looking like a normal person with long hair and walking along the streets of Gotham confronting a person dressed up like a clown. Uh, I like the way that they made him look. Uh, I like the way in that particular scene he carried himself. I think it's going to be an interesting way to set up that movie. 1980s Gotham City, origin story of the Joker. I don't like origin stories, especially not for the Joker, who shouldn't have one. But if you're going to do it that way, I think this is the right way to go. Uh, I know I talked about this with the ghoul earlier, as well as the monkey, but I wanted to get your thoughts on air, what you think about uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, doing a different spin on the Joker for his origin. <laughs> cool, go please take this one. <laughs> I, I think uh, Joaquin Phoenix is a fine actor. Um, mm-hmm. I think yeah. he's an actor that can lose himself in roles, which is great. I think he'll take the role seriously. Um, I mean, for what little bit we've seen, I really there's really not all that much to go on with it. Um, that being said, I also agree that I don't like the idea of a Joker origin story. I always prefer that character to simply be. 
You know, he just is, and, you know, kind of like Alfred says, you know, there are just some people who want to watch the world burn. Um, and mm-hmm. I love that version of the Joker. Um, I'm still holding out to finally see the version that I've wanted to see for a while now, which is the fucking Joker with his goddamn face stapled to himself, to his head. Yeah. But, you know, that just never seems to, to be coming to, to light. Yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to see that. But like like you had said, Ghoul, I think for the little that we got, I even put on my Facebook page, it's not a lot, but it's something. Um, and I like the fact that they're not automatically just showing you with the green hair and the white face and, and the red lips. I, I like the fact that they're kind of going along the route of the killing joke uh, storyline. You know, as a failed comic, uh, we might even get the red hood in this movie, which I think that would be the way to go if they're going to do it this way. Um, but, yeah, I don't really think you need to see that that version, the classic version of Joker right off the bat, I think it's better to tease us, um, you know, and just say we might have it in there, we might not, because it's an origin story. But um, it'll be interesting to see as they further go along with it. But uh, go ahead, Monkey. You know, what are your thoughts on uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a Joker? Oh, man, it's just, seriously, it's like, I, how much Joker do we need in movies right now? Because when you and I were talking last night, we're going to have this movie coming out, and then you said we're supposed to have more Jared Leto Joker in two other movies, right? Three. Three other movies? Yeah, there's going to be Gotham City Sirens, a standalone Joker movie, and then a Harley Quinn movie. So, yeah, you're going to get the yeah. Joker three more times with Jared Leto. Uh, yeah, it's just how, mu- how much Joker do we need? It's just... And and the, as far as an origin story, it's, it's covered. It's been covered and recovered. We all know the origin of Joker, and if you don't know the origin of Joker, then just go read The Killing Joke. It's a great book. It's a, it's a great graphic novel with some terrific artwork by Brian Boland. By all means, please go check it out. And if you've never read an, a comic book that's more geared towards adults, it will blow you away. It's just a great story. And if you want to do an origin story, just straight up do The Killing Joke and make, do that do that entire book and make that the movie. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, they've thought about doing. I mean, obviously we got hints of that in the B vs. S movie. Um, mm-hmm. And we so, did get the animated version. Yes. Yeah, we did. We did. Get it. I know the, I the animated movie series is the animated universe. You know, I'm talking about in their cinematic universe. That's definitely something that they could always go back and use as like prequel material, alternate universe material. I mean, well, no, I guess not because they've already proven that it happened in this DCU, whatever the fuck they call it, <laughs> Elemental P Q R S T V. Earth yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see it, but I mean, obviously, the next thing we got to figure out who the fuck is going to be our, our, our new Batman eventually. That is true, because I don't think I've heard any news about the new Batman, because I know that Ben Affleck said he's out. Uh, like we had talked about, I think, last week, that Henry Cable, he's out as Superman. So, yeah, you got to cast these two characters if you're planning on going forward, especially if you're going to make these Joker movies uh, with Jared Leto. You're going to have that Batman show up at a certain point. Um, so who are they going to get? Unknown, but I'd be interested to see who they can get. Yeah, but then also, no, it's just also it's like where you know, I'm just asking you guys. It's like because Batman is supposed to be 
um, 38 years old. That, that's the thing is that's how old he's supposed to be, all right? Mm-hmm. And do you think they should find someone that's, you know, a more rugged, like, 38-year-old, or are we, we going to ch- keep trying to go the pretty boy route with Batman? Oh, what? You, th- you think that Ben Affleck came <laughs> off as more pretty boy? I didn't think so. The dude caught himself the- fucking ripped for the fucking role, man. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Ben oh, Affleck yeah. ass Ben Affleck plays asshole well, and that's exactly the Bruce Wayne that we got. We got a pompous fucking I am better than everybody Bruce Wayne, which is one of Batman's biggest I think I think personally Ben Affleck could be a great Batman. I just think for whatever reason he just won't do it. I don't know if it's the script, if it's his fucking, maybe that same attitude that I feel like could be a, a strength for him as Bruce Wayne is the very same thing that's preventing him from becoming a good Bruce Wayne. Mm. I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, because I, I, we had talked about that before, how he was a great Bruce Wayne. Um, he played that Shannon Hamilton Mallrats type of Bruce Wayne where he was just a dick, you know, and it was great. But then when he became Batman, it just it kind of fell apart. It just it didn't work. And that's why I kind of go back to Christian Bale and I say, you know what, he was kind of good in both ends. He was a great, you know, Patrick Bateman type of Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne, rather. But he was a good Batman, too. Like, I thought he was a great I preferred, I preferred him both as ends. Batman and not so much as Bruce Wayne. So, so yeah, I thought he, he pulled off both pretty well. Yeah, see, uh, I thought he was a great Bruce Wayne. Maybe not such a great Batman, but I thought he was a great Bruce Wayne, but... You know, but he pulled off the role in the, the three movies that he did and did did a great job, like much yeah, better I mean, than any of the Tim Burton or Joel Schumacher movies, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about the, the Tim Burton ones. I mean, I, I think those films were great, you know. I mean, basically yeah. just held on the, the strength of you know, Jack Nicholson and fucking Michael Keaton and Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, you had fantastic casts and, and everything just was uh, we didn't have comic book movies back then you know what I mean so nope. uh, to, to sit there and be like the, you know the, the the Dark Knight trilogy is you know so much better than those that's just ridiculous I mean the same with the Schumacher movies absolutely those fucking things were just way too corny way way too corny <laughs> for their own good well we did a super movie, you know? superhero movies before Batman I mean we had uh, Captain America with Red Brown but those movies are terrible Oh, yeah. The West said about that I mean, better. We had Superman, you know what I mean, which was great yeah. in its time and in its way, but it was, uh, Burton was weird, and it was, it was dark, you know, whereas if Superman was all about fucking, you know, true justice in the American way, you know, Gotham was its own world, you know, whereas Superman yeah. felt, like the Superman films felt like they took place in our world. Whereas, you know, yeah. the Batman films did not feel like they were taking place. Like they didn't, I didn't feel like I could go somewhere in those Tim Burton movies and be like, oh, yeah, I'm fucking, you know, Batman's going to show up. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the, the universe itself, uh, the gothic buildings in Gotham, you know, that Tim Burton design, uh, it just it worked mm-hmm. really well to kind of show you the drabness of Gotham, you know, just a very cold, very gray type of city. Um, and it worked you know, really well. Um, and it's one of those situations where I feel like that environment of Gotham and those Tim Burton movies was never done as well again in the future installments, including the, the, the uh, Nolan movies. 
you know, where it's obviously updated, but still, I never felt like it got as good as it did with Gotham City back in those two movies, Batman and Batman Returns. Well, that's because, because, like the Google said, the movie, the the Gotham was its own character in those movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I feel like in the uh, the Nolan films, you know, obviously it was Chicago, man, you know, and that's what that's what he was going for. Uh, That was absolutely the look, the design, everything about it. Just he took, you know, he took it for what I kind of always felt like the DC universe was, whereas Metropolis was New York. You know, Gotham was like Chicago, and yeah. you know, obviously you have your Keystone City, and you have all these other places that are all representative of major cities in the United States. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree on that point. Um, like I said, I just I like that, that Gothic atmosphere that he created uh, for those two movies, and it was with no one movies that were more realistic. Obviously, like the Gould said, taking place in Chicago for Gotham City. So it was more realistic to the period now. It wasn't as comic book. It wasn't as gothic uh, as those movies. But, you know, time will tell what they do with future Batman movies in the DCEU. Um, we already know that we're going to be getting a lot of Harley Quinn and a lot of Joker. Uh, you know, uh, Suicide Squad 2. So, I mean, that was one I forgot to mention. It's coming out. So we have a lot to kind of figure out before we figure out if there's going to be another Batman. But uh, whoever it is, Hopefully it'll be good. I mean, Christian Bale said before Ben Affleck took over, I'm still available. I can still do it. But, you know, they want to distance themselves from the Nolan universe and create Yeah, well, they were, they were weirded out because, you know, he called them up and was like, I can still play Batman. For this <laughs> I'm, here. I'm here to play Batman for you guys. <laughs> I can still do it. Where is he? Take it easy, Batman. <laughs> we're going with Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, who's that? <laughs> no, that's that's what we're going back. <laughs> just read it on the phone. I'll show him that I can play like 22. He was the bomb of Phantoms, yo. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it remains to be seen. But I think it's interesting uh, how they're they're doing this new Joker, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, I know that originally they had said that Thomas Wayne. Uh, was going to be in the movie as well. Supposedly, the character is still going to be in the movie. Originally, it was going to be played by uh, Alec Baldwin. Uh, but he pulled out recently because there was rumors that Thomas Wayne was going to be like a Donald Trump type figure. Tan skin, megalomaniac, billionaire, uh, you know, with the, you know, the hair and everything like that. He just kind of said, nah, I'm out. <laughs> if that's the way you're going, Alec, I don't want to do it. Alec Baldwin pulled out. That's a, that's a surprise. Yeah. Seems like the he kind never of guy does. that doesn't pull out. No, he never does. That's what I'm saying. You know, he's not the the, the praying spray type of guy. But um, he's no, all about he, his sweaty uh, balls. <laughs> he backed out. So, and that was the interesting thing we talked about high. last night. <laughs> but that was the thing that uh, the monkey and I talked about last night. If Thomas Wayne is going to be in his origin story, you can't really have Batman in the origin story for the Joker because he doesn't exist yet. If Thomas Wayne's going to be in this movie, Batman doesn't become Batman until his parents die. So. It's going to be interesting to see how they play with that. Well, again, just like everything, man, we will see what they do, and then we will sit there and judge it probably over harshly. But that is how we roll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as comic book and movie fans. Because we know they will write it, they will shoot it, and then they will reshoot it and reshoot it and reshoot it. <laughs> Until they get it right. That's it. 
as the author. That's, um, that's how DC moving, does it. <laughs> moving back into the horror realm, uh, this is kind of interesting that I found earlier in the week. Uh, the movie Poor Clowns from Out of Space, I know that the monkey is a big fan. I am a fan oh, of the movie yeah. as well. Uh, for years, uh, it was kind of one of those things where they had talked about making a sequel to Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and it was going to be a fun idea, and the Chiodo brothers are going to be fully involved again. Uh, but nothing ever came yeah. because they just they didn't think it was going to be possible. They just didn't think they were going to be able to make it happen. But at this year's Halloween Haunted Nights in Hollywood, there is a scare zone dedicated to Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Uh, they have people dressed up like the clowns. They have the ice cream truck. They have the tent set up. Uh, you know, trying to scare people, and it works, and this is what made the Chiodo brothers say, you know what, we said that it probably was never going to happen, but we're revisiting the idea of making a sequel to Killer Clowns in Outer Space with the success of It. Uh, it seems like clowns might be a thing that they want to explore again. Um, I'm all for it. I think, you know, now if you're going to do it, you might as well. Um, I think it would work just as better as a DVD or digital release. I don't think it's going to make it as a theatrical run. Uh, do it like Puppet Master, a little right. You know, release it digitally, release it to DVD, and I think it'd be a hit. I think it's got a lot of fans uh, as far as a cult movie goes. So I wanted to get your guys' opinion uh, as far as a sequel, and do you think it's the right time to make one? Monkey guy? Oh, hell yes, man. Oh, hell yes. Yes, there was never a time where you couldn't do this, man, because this is a storyline where because of the way it was written, the way it ended, and we're talking about an alien race that comes down every once in a while, like predators, you know, you can have them just show up at any time. And it can just be a new cast of clowns that are coming down just to wreak havoc on any town. It doesn't matter. You know, and you don't need to worry about anything about the original movie. Just go in, have a new batch, and just have fun with it. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think it, it could work. I think, you know, uh, with a strong script and the Chiodo brothers being involved again, I think it could be fun. That's what the movie is. It's fun. You know, it's not necessarily a scary movie. It's just a fun horror movie that, you know, you could put on on a Friday night with a big bowl of popcorn and have a good time with it. But, you know, Ghoul, what do you think about another Killer Clowns? I love the original Killer Clowns from Outer Space, man. Um, I have not watched that movie in so long that it's probably a sin. Um, (laughs) That being said, you know, one of my favorite horror con experiences was getting to meet those three and hang out with them and chat with them. And, you know, we took pictures with them and I've got a killer clowns poster, you know, autographed by all of them. Um, Those guys are yeah, that was a bizarre AC two or one. I can't remember which yeah, one it was. That was, it was one or the other. Um, but God, they're just so genuinely just such nice, nice guys. Uh, I'm so th- I'm friends with them on Facebook. You know, I, I interact with them. You know, here and there. I try not to be, you know, a crazy fan where you know, fucking every little <laughs> thing that gets put up, I'm like, oh, hey, look at me, look at me. No, you know, but like if it's something that like I feel like I can have some kind of input, you know, I will. And they they're, they're always there to respond or reply, and that's just fucking awesome, man. That being said, if they've got an idea for a movie and they want to put in the work to do it and they've got a script that they think is going to be, you know, great, then please 
fucking do it. You know, I would love to see a sequel. Um, I kind of agree where, you know, maybe, I don't know about limiting it to digital. I think that if you promote the movie right, there is enough of a built-in fan base for maybe a limited theatrical run. You know, you don't have to go complete, you know, uh, digital slash fucking uh, DVD release with it. Um, There's enough fanfare, I think. And, you know, again, with the popularity of clowns and and everything else these days, I think, uh, you know, now would be a good time to, to pull it off, you know. But like I said, it comes down to whether or not they have a story that they feel is good. I'd rather them not force something out there if they don't think that it is worth it. I agree with you in there. Um, and when they were interviewed at Halloween Haunted Nights uh, with the excitement of this uh, scare zone dedicated to killer clowns, they didn't say it's being made. They didn't say, we're going to production, guys, because Halloween Haunted Nights is exciting and successful. You know, they just they saw how excited people got to be in this scare zone and to take pictures with the ice cream truck and to see these clowns walking around with their cotton candy guns. You know, they kind of saw how invigorated people were, and that's when they said, you know, did one time said never again, but now we're kind of considering it. And I think, why not do it? I, I think that it could be successful. Uh, just like you guys, I love Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And I think a cheesy movie like that could be successful again. I think there's enough of an audience where it, it could lead to more movies. And the Chiodo Brothers, like the Gullet said, are, are fantastic people. But speaking of going and meeting people at cons, uh, what is coming up this weekend, Ghoul? I know that you wanted to talk about it a little bit. So, what's oh, going on in Jersey this weekend? Dude, have you been practicing segues, man? I have. I've been practicing them here every night. Be, that might be the best segue you've ever pulled off right there, man. Um, yeah, no, I just wanted to mention, I mean, like, like I said last week, unfortunately, me and the Ghoul Girl are not going to be able to make it this this particular con. Um, but this weekend is the new the, – the, this weekend, I can say this if I try. This weekend is the New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival down at the Showboat Casino in Atlantic City. Um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, you know, they're, they're run by good friends of ours. They are always awesome people. It's an awesome convention. It's moving down to Atlantic City. It should be a lot of fun down there. You've got a looser atmosphere. Uh, you'll have a lot of other things to do. Besides just the convention itself, there'll be plenty of places to eat, you know, which I think was always one of the uh, the, the lesser points of being up in Edison. Um, you know, there, there'll just be entertainment everywhere. But speaking of the con itself, I mean, the guest list is fantastic this go-around. Um, it, it, it sucks to be missing it, to be honest with you. You know, you got Cassandra Peterson, you know, Elvira herself. Uh, they got special photo ops on a, a recreated version of her set. She will not be in Elvira costume. She will be as Cassandra Peterson, but it is on the on the famous couch and everything, you know, which is really cool. Uh, Linda Blair, Dee Snyder, um, you know, there's a, an Ash vs. the Evil Dead reunion with Ted Raimi and, and the, uh, the the girl, Dana Renzo, from it. Um, also, the, the one guy, uh, Farris, Lindsay Farris, I think his name is. Uh, Bam Barrera is going to be there. Eddie Furlong. Speaking of ha- uh, Halloween, you got Scout Taylor Compton from uh, the Halloween Rob Zombie Halloween. You know, the, the face of Michael Myers himself, our good friend Tony Moran, is going to be there. Uh, you know, 
fucking uh, the Father Gabriel from Walking Dead will be there. A couple other people from Walking Dead. Some of the people from Cabin Fever. Um, and just again, it's a, it's a who's who of craziness. You know, you got some far, uh, original Friday the 13th cast members. Uh, Adrian King, Amy Steele, Ari Lemon, the uh, layman. I don't, I don't know how you say his last name, but you know, little boy that jumps out of at the end of the movie that scared the fuck out of everybody. You know that kid. Uh, he, he is an adult now, though. <laughs> just, just to let you know. Fully grown. <laughs> yeah, he's fully grown. So don't, don't expect to see a weird-looking little kid. Instead, you've got a, you know, a, a grown, grown man. You know, uh, and then like some oddball guests, like they do with these things, man. You got William Daniels. You know, he is the, yeah, it's Mr. Feeney, but he was the voice of Kit, dude. Like I never knew that. Watching Boy Meets World, you know, I know him as Mr. Fucking Feeney. I never realized that that guy is the same one that voiced Kit in Night Rider. Oh, yeah. You know, and I loved Night Rider as a kid. You got Dennis ha- Haskins. You know, Mr. Belding from Saved by the Bell. Um. Like that's just nope. fucking weird. Two two principals from like classic eighties and nineties <laughs> television shows. You know that's that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ke- Kevin Nash and Scott Young. You know the Outsiders are, are gonna hey, be there. And uh, N- NWO <laughs> man. You know hey yo. Uh, you know so. Uh, Ron Jeremy, you know, the fucking hedgehog, you know, the dude that's got a gigantic cock that goes for miles and miles and miles. That's probably the one guest that I'm fucking, you know, really kicking myself in the ass that I'm not going to get there to go meet. Um, you know, but then again, you know, what do you do when you meet Ron Jeremy? Am I going to shake his hand? Ew. Am I going to hug him? Ew. Um, you know, stay, <laughs> keep my keep your distance and wave high. Just kidding. Yes, there are plenty of musical guests as well. Uh, you got Doyle from the Misfits, Lita Ford. Um, nah, who else? There was uh, uh, said somebody from Guar or two guys from Guar, Jiz uh, Mac something, and Sleazy. Uh, I don't yeah, listen to Guar, so I don't know if that's if that's a good thing, if it's a bad thing. But it's the guy from well. fucking Guar, man. Yeah, I'm a big uh, fan Mark of Guar. Mark will be there as yeah, ever since, uh, you know, Dave Rocky, Odorous died, you know, that band has gone through different changes, but uh, it's still good. But, yeah, once mm-hmm. Dave Rocky passed, I think the spirit of Guar kind of, you know, died down a little bit. But still cool that they got two members, Wade Ford, uh, Doyle Von Frankenstein from the Misfits. That's going to be Marky cool. Ramone. He'll be there, Marky man. Ramone. I, see, for, yeah. see, for me, Guar, I just, you know, I, my introduction to that band was through Empire Records. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> and and that little bit that I saw at Empire Records pretty much generated absolutely no interest for me to ever follow or really know anything else about that band. So yeah, I mean, that was sorry. that was that was the first punk rock show I ever went to. I was y'all thirteen yeah. when I went. <laughs> it was, you know, because we you know we had talked about with you know the Cole and I talked about on the air and off air. About Rob Zombie putting on one hell of a show, but Guar, uh, back in the day, I saw them when I was about 15 or 16. They put on one hell of a horror show. Nothing but blood spraying around. They had a monster that ate people. You know, heavy metal punk rock at its finest. I mean, I love Guar, and I still do. But I mean, if you were talking about a horror metal punk show, that was the one to go see because you were just going to get drenched in blood and spit and everything else that you could possibly imagine, you know, at a Guar show. Oh. My first show was Brian Adams. So, oh, that's sweet. 
<laughs> That's a nice one. I appreciate that. Good, Brian Adams. Hey, here's a pop star. Sure, okay, well, girl. Search your heart and search your soul, okay? Because when, when you find me there, you'll search no more. It's poetry, man. Um, so, yeah, that is this weekend, NJ HorrorCon. But for the cinephiles out there who like retro horror as much as I do and want to see it more on the big screen, if you go over to RetroNightmares.com, started this weekend, September 27th, what he's discussing is going to be presenting House on Sorority Row nationwide in theaters uh, with a short that basically be presented like a pledge if you were going to be pledging to that sorority, which I think was cool. But they're not only going to be stopping with House on Sorority Row, they're also going to be doing Amityville, The Evil Escapes, Amityville, It's About Time, Sweet 16, which is a favorite of mine from the late 80s, and The Convent, which is a great non-floitation film, also from the same time period. So if you're into seeing movies that are retro and you want to see them on the big screen, go to RetroNightmares.com, get your tickets, see where the theater is if you can play these movies. Call something non- non-floitation. Yeah, non-floitation. Is that, that a is, thing? Uh, that is I, a I, I thought you just invented that, man. I was going to say, bro, that was good stuff. Oh, no, 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 I did not invent that. No, that is a, a specific genre of horror films that has to do with the church and the nuns. Um, there's been plenty of those movies like The Convent, The Church, um, The Devils, which is a great Ken Russell film with Oliver Reed. So, yeah, there, there's plenty of nun exploitation out there. All you have to do is just type that into Google, and you'd be surprised how fucking many movies show up of uh, the nun exploitation variety. But, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what it is, and... The Convent is a great example of that. Uh, the Nun just came out a couple of weeks ago, like we had talked about. That's considered non-exploitation because of the, of the material, even though I don't think anybody would say it. But for us loyalists to that old-school 70s and 80s variety, it is a non-exploitation film. It just happens to be doing really fucking well. I just always thought it was called religious horror, you know. I don't know. I think about The Exorcist, The Omen, you know, all those movies that are all like religious based horror movies. I mean, is that like Satan's exploitation? Like, uh, how many? We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I mean, how many of these little fucking niche subgenres are they really going to come up with names for just to kind of make people feel cool about watching them? Well, I mean, you have uh, black exploitation, you have sex exploitation, you have hippie exploitation. Okay, but black exploitation is specifically called that yeah, because it's utilizing a race of people, you know, sure. not a specific type of, you know, profession or whatever you call done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But but it's there. I mean, it's just a, a brand that you put on those particular movies where nuns are having sex and masturbating crucifixes and doing vile things. Uh, they, that's what I'll, they call I'll have none of it, okay? Because <laughs> yeah. that's a bad habit, if you ask me, watching those movies. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! <laughs> but you know, oh, that's your cr- that's your cross the, the nun, bear, man. But yeah, <laughs> oh, there you go. But speaking uh, of the nun and how well it did uh, on its opening weekend, we are talking about The Conjuring from 2013 tonight, directed by James Wan, which is the kickoff to this universe uh, that features various different movies taking place within the Warren universe. Uh, The Nun, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Conjuring 1 and 2, but we're talking about the first one tonight. It is the ghoul's pick, so I'm going to give it to him to introduce us to this movie, and then we'll kick it off. Uh, It's The Conjuring, man. I think at this point everybody knows 
what it is. I mean, it's a, uh, a hugely successful franchise um, of films based on, you know, the alleged true memoirs of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, I, for one, you know, take these movies and look at them as works of fiction. Um, I mean, obviously, again, they, uh, if perception is reality, then they believe that, you know, whatever happened, happened, and that's that. That's, that's I guess, up to them. Um, I feel like, you know, things uh, have obviously been fudged and changed in order to make it, you know, more viable for film and, and all of that. And they, they don't shy away from that. You know, like I, I always like to watch the end of a movie of, uh, of this type simply to see, you know, in the credits, if it says that, you know, this is a work of fiction or is this, you know, is this based on true events? And I mean, you know, at the end of the conjuring, it is, it says that it, it is based on true events, but that there are things that were changed for dramatic purposes. Uh, the story centers around uh, Ed and Lorraine investigating a house in Long Island, which has got some uh, got a family being haunted or whatever, being bothered by a demonic entity. Well, I have to correct uh, you there. It's not uh, Long Island. It's Rhode Island. Uh, I said Rhode Island. Rhode Island. I said Long Island. I said Rhode Island. No, you said, said Rhode Island. You said- you said Long Island. Did I say Long Island? Oh, my bad, man. I was probably thinking <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I know that. But, yeah. but, but it's yeah, okay. We'll <laughs> okay Thanks. So continue man, definitely, thank you. You know, your forgiveness definitely uh, soothes my heart and makes me feel better as a human being. I, I know <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what did you think about the movie? Who, me? I'm the one that just gave that whole thing. Why don't you guys go first? Okay, I was going to say, I didn't really hear that, what you thought about it, but I will get into it. All right, so, uh, Monkey, what did you think about the Conjuring? All right, uh, this was my first time watching it. This is actually my first time watching anything involved with the Conjuring universe just because, um, you know, of all the normal people that were out there going, oh, this movie, you know, this movie in this series are so awesome, you got to go see this. You know, all the normals were all about this movie. And usually when they say that, that means it's usually a big steaming pile of shit. Um, no, but um, that being said, this while I'm personally not usually a fan of haunted house movies, just because usually of the low body counts and scenes that I really don't find scary, uh, I usually find them very annoying. Like, I personally can't stand Amityville. I'm one of those weird people, sorry. But this movie, though, I found actually not bad. It was pretty entertaining, and pre- you know, and a fun ride throughout the entire movie. Um, the the DV even sat down and watched the entire movie with me, which she never does for this show. <laughs> um, and I, I think they did a decent job with it. I, I was pleasantly surprised by this film. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, in my opinion, it's going to be difficult because I have to separate, like the Dwarf said, I have to separate fact from fiction. Um, and that's what this movie comes off as. It's just genuinely fiction. Um, the Warrens is kind of a difficult spot for me because I've never liked the Warrens, Ed Moraine. Um, I've always thought that they were just smoke and mirrors type of a couple. 
that like to exploit things and embellish them and to make it seem like there's a lot more going on than there actually is. Um, with the parent you mean they're not superheroes? That this movie is based on. What's that, Monkey? I said, what, you mean they're not superheroes? <laughs> no, they're not. No, Bonnie certainly. Uh, with this particular case of, of the parents, we'll get into it, um, they were not as involved as this movie would lead you to believe. Uh, with uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga playing Ed Moraine, uh, being so heavily involved with this couple, we'll get into the scenes that they're in. They were not as involved in this parent case. They were actually told to leave in real life because the family thought that they were actually angering the spirits in the house. So they had said, you're actually not helping. you got to leave. But when the book came out, The Demonologist, in 1980, uh, written by uh, Gerald Riddle, he had basically said, oh, it was the scariest time of their lives, and this is the one that affected them the most, and that's why they're talking about it now. Well, you know, Gerald Riddle also sued Warner Brothers for $900 million because of him not being involved in the film when he's supposed to be because of the deal he had with the Warrens. But nevertheless, the movie itself is mediocre. Um, it's not anything you haven't seen before. If you've seen the Haunted House movie, it's a bunch of noises and then a ghost and then a third act that kind of goes off the rails. Um, I like the movie, but I don't love it. Um, and it kind of leads me to believe with you guys watching it for this week, do you guys kind of get why all of a sudden this movie series became so popular? Because based on this movie, I don't really get how they've managed to have spinoffs and sequels and that like, which has made tons of money. I just don't see it happening based off of this one movie. Yeah, I, I'm lost, man. It's like, while, while the movie, I said, was fun and it's a decent ride, I seriously cannot figure out how it, it has spawned the series that it has. Uh, off of, because... This this was the first movie out of the entire series, or or were the Annabelle movies first? No, this was first. Okay, then yeah, I seriously can't understand how it has spawned all of this off of this one movie. I didn't think it was that good. <laughs> what do you think, Google? I mean, all right. So again, I feel like this movie. And, you know, all of the, the sequels and whatnot. I mean, you know, to com- the, the first thing I obviously compare them to are films like Amityville. You know, something that the Warrens were involved with, you know, to, to whatever level that they were involved with it. Um, I think this kind of movie fills a void, though that, you know, we used to get these kind of films, you know, again, like I said earlier, The Omen, The Exorcist, you know, Amityville, Poltergeist. There was an entire genre of film that kind of went away. Um, and when it did start making a return, what we got were the paranormal activity type of movies, you know, where it was found footage type yeah. of stuff. Um, mm. This brought it back to crafting a story using people, um, you know, using actual characters, not using shaky cam, but bringing back, you know, some of the effective things from that genre, like the jump scare factor and things like that. Um, I easily see why it spawned a franchise. I mean, you know, for, for whatever, as much as the movie wants to make itself seem like the Warrens are the important people in the film. 
I think it's almost always the surrounding cast that is more interesting. And obviously the sets and, you know, the the sound design, all of that stuff. Um, You know, the Annabelle doll, uh, real life, you know, it's a Raggedy Ann doll. But the doll that they crafted, that they show you at the beginning of this movie, creepy looking fucking doll. And, you know, we've seen what creepy dolls do in films, you know, and in television, you know, going back all the way to the Twilight Zone, you know, you don't fuck with creepy dolls. So, yeah, I can see why that gets a spinoff, you know, and then with the the movie being successful, it's obviously going to get a sequel. The Warrens have plenty of stories to tell. Um, And again, you know, whatever their, their level of interaction with, the people involved with said story or, you know, how, however true one wants to believe it to be, um, that also depends on your opinion, you know? Like, how much do you believe in the spiritual world? You know, how much do you believe in ghosts? How much do you believe in things like demons and possession and stuff like that? So, right. I mean, if you're if you're skeptical about those kind of things, then, you know, obviously this movie is going to be something that you're going to kind of fold your arms while you're watching it. If you're a believer, then, I mean, you're not going to do that. You know, instead you're going to find a level of enjoyment here that, you know, I don't know, that, that obviously a lot of people have found. And the fact that it's PG-13 opens it up to a larger audience overall, which, again, you know, who are the people that we want at horror movies? You know, we want teenagers, man. That's what Friday the 13th, that's what all of those genres that we that we adore so much, that's what they were all about, you know? They were about putting the kids in the seats, you know? They were the ones that were fucking going to see these movies. You know, these days, it's, it's harder for these young kids to sneak into theaters because, you know, the fucking mothers no, of the world are all like, blah, you taught my kid how to fucking murder people because, you know, my kid's a psychopath now and it's all because he watched your movie. But, you know, as we learned, you know, movies don't make fucking, you know, psychos. They make fucking psychos more creative. Thank you, Billy. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, um, you know, and and the kickoff of this movie, it had a good vibe. I did like the vibe taking place in 1968. Uh, You have this group of nurses living in an apartment together and they picked up this doll um, and there was a spirit saying that it wanted to go into the doll, so they allowed it. But that was my first kind of problem with it, is that Annabelle looks creepy as shit. And it works for the movie, but I kind of like the fact that the real Annabelle is a Raggedy Ann doll, because it's so unassuming. But apparently it has all this evil built up in this Raggedy Ann doll. And I kind of like the fact that it's so unassuming. You know, when you have a creepy doll, you think that creepy shit's going to happen. If you have an unassuming doll, you're not going to want to believe it when all of a sudden it starts sending you messages like, miss me. And fucking with your apartment. And I think that's one of those things I had a problem with. I kind of wish they had gone with a more unassuming doll to kind of kick it off. Well, if I can just interject real quick. I mean, you obviously have two issues going on there. One, cinematically, does a Raggedy Ann doll work? But obviously the more important thing there comes down to rights, you know, and the company that makes Raggedy Ann and owns Raggedy Ann, I don't think they want to attach the Raggedy Ann doll to a horror franchise. Mm-hmm. Well, they could have made anything, really. I mean, they could have made just an unassuming doll that has no rights, has no copyrights. They could have just made a doll with a happy face on it. 
and just had to lay in the hallway and do sinister things. And it's like, look at the Taki Tina. Taki Tina had a happy face, but she was evil as fuck. <laughs> and that's why it worked. You don't think this cherubic looking doll is going to cause fucking somebody's death, but it does. And that's why you know, man, it's I, creepier that way. I've seen so many fucking like porcelain dolls. And, you know, I, I, I go to, oh, yeah. you know, in my, in my industry, I'm, I'm in a lot of people's houses. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people's collections sometimes. And you they know what, man? Creepy. Dolls are fucking creepy. They really are, uh-huh. you know, and even, even the fucking perpetually happy ones are fucking creepy, too, because what the fuck are they so happy about all the time? <laughs> <laughs> um, but did you guys think that that was a good way to kind of kick it off, to introduce the ones, is by having the Annabelle doll? Because this is obviously before the movies, um, so we had no idea of watching this movie at first that it's going to uh, go into a franchise type of situation. Or do you think they should have gone right into the parent family haunting? Monkey? Man. Uh, I, I thought it was a good introduction just so we could understand what the Warrens do, you know, and mm-hmm. understand, you know, what their shtick is about, you know, they, they go around and they break up spirits and houses and stuff like that. You know, I thought it was a decent introduction. I didn't realize that that same doll, though, was going to be coming back into the storyline later. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't think it needed to come back as far the way they brought it back. Uh, but as far as just an introduction of what the Warrens do, you know, I, I thought it worked. Mm-hmm. What do you think, I, uh I like it as an introduction. And the reason why is because of what it turns out to be anyway. It turns out that they're, you know, they're doing a course at a college. And they're telling that story, you know, to the students there. So, you know, even though we're seeing, you know, what, what looks like, like footage and whatnot, I mean, it's, it's like you're being taught what those students are to give you an idea of who these people are, what it is that they do. Um, it also gives you an introduction to what we're going to see later in the film with not meeting the doll, but how a demonic entity works. Um, that being said, I do wonder and, su- and I, I suspect that, you know, the beginning of the film was set. I feel like they what? brought the doll back later in the movie in post-production type of deal where it was like, mm. hey, the doll tested well with audiences can we figure out another way to put this thing in here? And, you know, they bring the daughter in, which, like, it, it, the doll coming back later in the movie just didn't make any sense to the overall no. arc of the movie. So that's why I felt like it kind of got shoehorned in there, just because maybe audiences liked the look of it. Or maybe because the studio was like, hey, listen, we're going to be making this doll her own movie. We need to try to stick her in people's faces as much as possible, but we really can't fit it into this story because it didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I did like was that classroom sequence uh, at the beginning, you know, when they're talking about Annabelle and, you know, you have this class that they're teaching, and that's what they did in real life back in the 70s and then throughout the 80s. They did go to different colleges, and they would teach about hauntings and uh, exorcisms and things of that nature. And I think that was what was so strong about Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson is that they were believable as this couple. I did like their dynamic uh, together, um, playing the Warrens, how they played off of each other. Um, they, they took the material very seriously, even though 
Uh, like the Gullet said, if you're a skeptic like I, myself, I don't believe in ghosts or demons or possessions. But it's an interesting idea that this thing could exist, you know, and watching the tapes and things like that. I just, I like that they were showing this. I mean, when the one guy says, well, wh- what should we call you? I'm like, well, first of all, call them frauds. But if you want to call them demonologists, call them demonologists. But I do like the fact that it's at a time when this is still kind of new, investigating ghosts. Like, it's not something that people were popular with. Nowadays, everybody has a ghost hunter show. All you got to oh, do is go oh, to travel destination and you have a ghost show. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. But back then, it was something new. It was something that was not really heard of, the paranormal investigation types. Um, but what did you guys think of, of Patrick Wilson and Peter Farmiga in these roles? I loved them. You know, I thought they mm-hmm. were great. Um, again, regardless of whatever your opinions are of the Warrens right. themselves, you know, these two have chemistry on screen. Um, they work very well together. They work very well off of each other. Um, she exudes a strangeness about her as an actress, you know, and I'm just talking Vera Farmiga in general, you know, like even oh, yeah. outside of this movie, anything I've ever seen her in, she just Those has that, that quality about her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but even like the air up there, um, you know, like, mm-hmm. there's other films that I've seen her in, uh, even the, the Departed, you know, she is an odd type of actress, um, which is great. You know, I, I, it's my favorite kind, you know, when somebody is fat, talented to where every role that they're going in, you, even though you know it's still them, you still see what they're doing, which is fantastic. You know, very, very few actors and actresses can, can do that. Um, and Patrick Wilson plays a great straight man for it, um, you know, which is kind of what he's, I don't know, known for. You know, I, like, I ended up watching The Watchmen shortly after yeah. this. Uh, I went to sleep to it last night, you know, and it's funny, but he does the same, it's, it's almost the same thing as Night Owl as far as, like, his, <laughs> his character's personality traits, you know. Um, it's just dry, and it's, you know, it's just like the, the goody-two-shoes type of guy. That's what he comes off as. Uh, so, yeah, their their chemistry is fantastic, and, and, yeah, I love the opening. I love how we're introduced to them, and, and yeah, again, taking it outside of any kind of opinion as to, to what they do, um, they, they, they work. You know, they've got me captured yeah. as these people. Yeah, and, that, that, and I'm going to get to the monkey in a second, but that was my problem with them. Uh, not, not Vera for me and Patrick Wilson. I thought they did a great job. It's, again, separating yourself from the source material, which is the real-life couple, and going to the movie couple, where they are very personable and they work well as a couple, but then you try to think about the real-life couple, and you're like, well, they, they weren't anything like that. Um, it, it was difficult. But, Monkey, what did you think about uh, them as a couple, you know, Patrick uh, Wilson and Vera Farmiga? Now, again, we're only talking about the movie, and, yeah, they, they worked together well and made a good team, like, as far as her, you know, being the one who has the powers and the ability to see and the ability to sense, while he has to be the safety net and make sure that she doesn't hurt herself, you know, doing what she does. You know, he's the one that's got to, you know, be able to reel her back in, you know, and keep her grounded so that she doesn't go too deep in into what she does. You know, and they work well together to cre- create this team of going out there and, you know, try, trying to save the world one house at a time. 
Yeah, and I did like that they had uh, early on in the movie, you know, they had said that something had happened to her during an exorcism that kind of left her a little weaker. And with Ed not knowing if he wanted to include her in a lot of the cases that he was going out on because he didn't think she was ready, uh, they had the one case that they went on in the movie where she insisted on going. And when they went there, they found out that it wasn't really a haunting at all. It was just creaky wood and, you know, it's just a house and different things in it. And I like the fact that they added that element that not everything is a haunting. Sometimes things could be readily explained as a creaky faucet or wood or just a house expanded. And I think that was necessary. I mean, it, it seems like a throwaway scene, but I like the fact that they had it in there, is to show you that not everything is haunted. You might think it is because you hear something weird, but it could be easily explained. Yes, and, no, and I don't she, I mean, No, please, go ahead. Sorry, cool. No, I was going to say, I thought that was a very, I thought that was a very good scene to throw in, just for everyone that swears that they're just haunted and whatnot. It's like, go ahead and take a look around, especially with the ghoul who digs around your house all the time when he has to go in there. You know, probably finds the reasons for all all the shit that you think is haunted. (laughs) That's all I was going to say, ghoul. Um... All right, so again, this is where I think, like, you know, opinion obviously comes into play as far as, like, what you do and don't believe. Uh, You know, the the ghoul girl asked me last night while we were watching the movie, you know, because, like, she believes in the spiritual world and, you know, obviously that there are demonic entities and, and that there are all kinds of things like this. I am... I am skeptical to a degree where I feel like, you know, somewhere in the range of like maybe 95 to 98% of things can be explained either scientifically or just, you know, using regular fucking old reality with it, similar to what they show us in this movie where, you know, people used to think their houses were haunted and it just, you know, the reality was it was just expanding pipes because of how houses were designed. Um... You know, I get customers all the time who are like, oh, you know, we don't understand why that thing's making noise. It's got to be, something's got to be wrong with it, and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, it's because you got copper pipes that are going through wood, and when the pipes heat up, they expand, and then that makes the wood creak. Um, you know, they automatically assume that there's something wrong. So I could just imagine, you know, years ago, when people didn't understand things like that and they saw, you know, they heard something or saw something that they couldn't explain and boom, you know, it just automatically had to be, you know, look, Salem Witch Trials, you know, it was that kind of deal. Mm-hmm. I do think there is a small percentage of unexplained things out there that there are, you know, possible things attached to this world that we no longer have the ability to either fully sense or see. Um, I guess it's kind of like the theory is God dead type of deal. Uh, You know, obviously there are a lot of stories and tales, you know, the the Bible and everything that have all kinds of crazy connotations and, and ideas behind them. And I do feel like, you know, just about everything has some basis in reality. So where does some of those come from? You know, so I, I like the fact that they, they drop in there that, you know, what, well, like you said, not everything is going to always be a haunting. You know, sometimes it just may be as simple as that. That being said, I'm a fucking heating and cooling guy. 
doing it for 22 fucking years, and I have never, ever, ever been in a house in which you find fucking steam pipes lining the roof of the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to beat on that <laughs> when I saw that scene. I was like, yeah, where's the ghoul at with this one? Because I know you being that guy. Well, that and the fact that the guy, you know, that the Perron family or whatever buy this house, but supposedly don't know there's a basement in it, but they do know that there's heating in the house and that it's a boiler, and that's yeah. where the fucking boiler is located. He's trying to fire up the furnace. I mean, where the fuck did he think it was? And that's how does somebody what, sell that so place much. without fucking showing where the heat is? That really, Even I mean, in the 70s, honestly, God damn it. I mean, I'm okay. glad that you brought that up because that scene frustrated me so much uh, when the parent family moved in and they're playing the hide-and-clap game and they go into the, the closet clap, clap. and the little girl knocks into the wall. Um, and then they're like, what's this? Why did they board up the basement? I'm like, well, that's where fucking everything is that you need for the rest of the house. Like when uh, Carolyn Perrin the next day goes, it's so cold in here. Why don't you fix the, you know, the furnace? Yeah, good thing you fucking found it because what were these people going to do? <laughs> If they didn't discover that there was a basement that was boarded up, this freeze to death? It's so weird. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those odd things. I mean, again, it's it's obviously movies. It's whatever. You know, of course. These small, small complaints. You know, <laughs> I can nitpick on this stuff because it's what I do for a living, you know? Not, not, nitpick, not nitpick on things, but, you know, heating and cooling. Uh <laughs> No, <laughs> but I guess nitpicking kind of falls in there too. Nor do I. He couldn't fix the car. He couldn't even find the fucking furnace. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was, yeah. But I mean, that, I get it for spooky purposes. Like you know, oh, it's spooky because they found this board of the basement. Why did they board up the basement? That's so spooky. But at the same time, why, like, didn't they ask these questions when they bought the house? I mean, I know that they got it at a sale. You know, it wasn't it was an estate sale, so it wasn't like they went to a realtor to find this house. At the same time, you would think that would be a question. Uh, you know, how are we going to heat this house in the wintertime? Uh, there is no furnace, and there is no basement. And it's not like you're in Florida. You're in Rhode Island. And, and you know, I'm pretty sure it's pretty <laughs> cold in, in Rhode Island in the winters, you know. Mm-hmm. But speaking of the, uh, the parent family, uh, we have Ron Livingston playing uh, Roger, the head of the family, who's an over-the-road truck driver. I like Ron Livingston Fucking a. a lot. I, I, <laughs> He is, he's a good actor. I like seeing him in this movie. He was believable in his role. Uh, Lily Taylor, um, who I know from Say Anything and a ton of other movies, uh, I liked her as uh, Carolyn. It was the fact the family was so believable. Like, they weren't over the top at any point. Even when shit starts really going south, they were still very believable uh, in their roles, including the daughters. Um, but what did you guys think about the representation of the parent family uh, as characters? Do it, monkey. Monkey, <laughs> Peter Man, Brent's exam on Channel Three. No, um, <laughs> no. With these though, don't um, want you fucking up my life too. <laughs> no, but with, the, but with the roles of Carolyn Roger, actually, I I really wasn't feeling it like I was with the Warrens. Like I, like I wasn't getting the chemistry like the ghoul was saying that we have between Lorraine and Ed. It's just Carolyn and Rogers. I don't know, it felt forced, and it just didn't seem like it was clicking, really. He just didn't come across as the caring dad that he's supposed to be when he's, like, kind of a truck driver and kind of there and kind of not. It's, 
I don't know. I, oh, I think he's that a truck driver. I, <laughs> no, but I no. It's just I think his particular role was like just written all kinds of weird, and the movie was mostly centered around all of the women of the family, and he was just kind of thrown in there. I don't know about that. If he was just thrown in, I mean, he's a truck driver. I mean, he has to be gone a lot of the times. Um, you get to see about how he's having hard times as it is, you know, getting routes. You know, he's going to lose the insurance on the truck if he doesn't get some work soon, and then they have him go over the road to Florida, you know, for a week because he's got to make money. He's got five kids and a wife to take care of. So it was believable to me. I mean, I don't know. I thought that was one of the most realistic things in the movie, this guy just trying to make ends meet in this house and trying to keep the food on the table. What do you think, Gould? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I kind of – fall on both sides of this with that. You know, for me, part of the problem is as soon as I see Ron Livingston, fucking Peter comes out of my mouth. You know, I can't I can't separate him from the Office Space movie. In nope. Anything that I see him in. He is just always that fucking character. Um, Lily Taylor, on the other hand, though, I adore. You know, I find her to be one of those actresses she is just always so fantastic, and she's obviously she's always cast in the same neurotic, weird style female. Um, you know, she was that in Six Feet Under. She was that in Say Anything. She just she's she's one of those people that has that look, and that just it works. She does it well, and I don't see her as anything but that. That being said, the two of them. Yeah, you know, I they, they really I didn't feel any chemistry between them, but I don't think the movie was trying to really show that chemistry. I think the, right. the, the chemistry for them was really the the Warrens, you know, and trying to show what a what a relationship those two had. Um, the per, you know the parent family they were just the people that had a haunted house. I know they were going for realism and they had to keep, you know, certain things there, but we've seen movies take liberties before. They needed to trim the amount of kids down. Um, there was no reason <laughs> to have all five of those children when you could pare that down and actually maybe develop a little bit more of each child. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, you know, they had Joey King, who, you know, I first saw her in the uh, the Ramona movie. Um, and okay. she's a fantastic young actress, you know, that is up and coming. You know, she's one of those that they speak of big things for her. And, you know, she is, you know, she's older now and she's not hurtful on the eyes either. Um, obviously, she's, she's a little kid here and she kind of was weird looking. But, uh, but yeah, she, she grew into that weirdness, man. That's for sure. Um, but anyway, that being said, uh, the, the kids were the kids, you know, the too many of them. That's my complaint there. And yeah, Lily and, and Ron, they do what they got to do. But, you know, this movie's the Warrens movie. Yeah, it really is. And that, that was um, one of the things that I had noticed in this movie is that you have this back and forth where you have the parent family, you know, settling into their new house and slowly things start to happen. Uh, kicks off with the death of their dog Sadie outside. Uh, I hope that was fucked up. <laughs> it was, but I mean, it had to happen because they have to get something to kick off this haunting with. But then you have a back and forth with Ed and Lorraine, where Ed is giving a tour of the basement. Um, I like that scene, but at the same time, I like the fact that he's like, "You can't touch anything in this basement. You have it plus once a month, but you touch everything, Ed." <laughs> so, 
why are you so special as opposed to everybody else? Just because you have Cause a Because he's a demonologist, man. He knows how to handle yeah. that yeah. shit. Yeah, he, he can't give exorcisms, but he can assist. And we'll see how that works out at the end of the movie. Well, he, but, he's, not, uh, he's not a priest. He's not. You know, he that's, makes that very clear that's, that, numerous times. But that's, why he, but that's why he can't do exorcisms. He's not a but priest. He just he have the one priest well, no, I think <laughs> yeah. he didn't have a choice, you know. Try to well, put yeah. your back against the wall at that point. Yeah, I mean, but it was really just a back and forth where clearly it was a Warren's movie. It wasn't a Perrin family movie. It was a Warren's movie. But I do like the fact that they kind of built up to the haunting, you know, the momentum of it. You know, it starts very small. And that's how, if you read into hauntings in real life, that's how a lot of them start, very small things. Things start to disappear. You start to hear some things, and then it kind of progressively builds up. And that's what I thought was good about this movie, is the fact that it started small. It wasn't really trying to give you the big scare right at the start. It was slowly building. Uh, where Carolyn and her daughter, uh, Cindy, or April rather, they have their uh, game of hide and clap, where she's running around the house, and it's the only two of them in the house, and they go to that closet scare. And that, that scare actually worked. You know, it wasn't a jump scare necessarily. It was kind of a thing of the closet opening up and then the hands clapping from inside the closet. I liked it because I thought it was <laughs> so much better than a sting scare, which is so reliable in these movies. No, yeah, no I mean, that particular these movies do... Yeah? Huh? Oh. Go ahead, Monkey. Go ahead, Ghoul. Oh. No, go ahead, Ghoul. No, I was just gonna say, like you know, these movies obviously, just like most horror films, they they do rely on the loud noise, the jump scare. A lot of horror movies do that, you know, not just ghost movies, but just even old school horror movies did stuff like that too. Um, but you know, visually, some of the the creepy factor that was involved in this film was good. And that was one of those, those first moments where it was like, all right, that's, that's kind of fucking creepy. You know, you, you see those hands come out and, and it's just like, all right, you know, you know, it's not the kid. So fuck, what the fuck was that? And I think it worked better when she was in the basement. Uh, when Karen went down to the basement with the, uh, the matchbooks, the light off the basement, and then the hand come up right from behind her. That worked. That honestly, you know, gave me a little bit of a start. You know, when, even when I watched it this time, you know, it's still just a creepy thing with the hands coming up right by her ear and clapping. I'm like, all right, that's good. You know, if you can get me to jump a little bit in the horror movie, you're doing something right. And it worked. But it was that nice build of uh, the one daughter, Christine, getting her leg pulled, and she keeps seeing something that's not there. You know, it, it's very subtle. It's not like all of a sudden the ghost is like, ah, I'm a ghost, ah, I'm haunting you. No. I like slow builds like that, where it just kind of builds on it, to where the family just gets to that point where everybody's being attacked and they feel like they have no way out. So where do you turn? Turn to the warrants. You know, Carolyn insisting on them coming, and you know, uh, Ed and Lorraine being very skeptic of this haunting. You know, like, hey, you sure it's not the price? Are you sure it's not this? Are you sure it's not that? No, I'm dead serious. Um, and I kind of like that. The fact that they were very skeptical until they started experiencing it on their own. Uh, the woman hanging from the tree branch when Lorraine was there. It was, it was an effective image. Not necessarily scary, but kind of cool to see that she actually is effective. Oh, see, and I didn't yeah. take it as they were... I mean, Ed, I think, is, you know, always seen as the, as, as the skeptic. Um, I think, 
you know, when they were approached by Lily Taylor um, in the parking lot, you know, Ed didn't want to take it, but not because he was skeptical of it. I think it was because he just didn't want to put Lorraine through it. Um, But I felt like Lorraine, like right off the bat, believed this woman that something was going on. Like, you know, you could see something in her demeanor that, you know, whatever is going on at this woman's house, it's it's something serious, you know, and it's not just, you know, somebody saying, hey, I'm, I'm hearing noises, this and that, you know, something's, you know, big time had to have been going on there. But the, uh, just to, just to dial it back a little bit, the, the bed scare, um, this is one of those cases in which they are obviously, you know, stealing from one of the best. I mean, this was a total reference to Poltergeist, you know, in my opinion. You know, oh, I'm yeah. thinking, yep. as soon as I'm seeing this scene, everything about it just reminded me of Robbie and that clown, you know, from her going under the bed, you know, looking <laughs> under the bed from the side of the bed and everything. What I did enjoy, though, is what they did with the camera when she looked under the bed. And if you look oh, at yeah. it... The, the camera's flipped over, and the floor mm-hmm. is on the top, you know, and I thought that was nice, a, yep. a nice little thing in there that, you know, if, you, if you're casual, you might not have noticed it, but, uh, you know, I, I had caught that, and I thought that was, uh, I appreciated it very much. Yeah, there was a couple nods to the poltergeist, whether it was intentional or not that I got in this movie. Um, you know, that being one of them, uh, with, with the girl in her bed, uh, when they're setting up the uh, the equipment to kind of capture the ghosts and the spirits and everything like that in the house, uh, having Officer Drew there, I kind of felt like he was the one investigator in Poltergeist that rips off his face in the mirror. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can see that being a stand-in for that guy, you know, having this cop there to kind of oversee things. That scene fucked me up, man. It works even to this day, even though you know what's going on and you know what's happening. It's still a great scene. Like, it's still one of those, I just, you know, I enjoy it thoroughly. But I felt like that was another callback to Poltergeist, whether it was intentional or not. Um, just the whole setting up the equipment. You have the Ed Lorraine team, you know, going through and setting things up. And that's what the, the monkey was talking about earlier, where Ed's talking about the car. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've been planning to fix that thing up for a while. Then Ed goes immediately to work to fix that car up. All right. <laughs> You're here to investigate a haunting. You're not here to do laundry, Lorraine. Like, why are you doing the laundry, too? You're talking about how much you love the girls. Like, you're there. It's a job. You know? No, Ed went and ordered another engine, and he was putting another engine in there because he found one yes, he was. in the scrapyard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he went out to uh, yeah. the scrapyard and grabbed it for him, you know? Paid for it. Yeah, that, uh, it was silly, that whole thing. But, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I I think that these, I mean, obviously they're valid complaints, but I think the problem isn't so much that that that's what's being shown because, I mean, they're just trying to, again, I think they're Humanized. just trying to show how nice and wholesome the Warrens are. Now, whether they're that way in real life or not, whatever. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I've never met them. Um, you know, and pretty much you know, my, my my research into them is you know, kind of brought up different tales, you know, not just bad ones, you know, good ones as well. But the, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the, the bigger point is that the movie poorly shows the passage of time. It does, and absolutely. I, I think that is a detriment to the film. You know, we, we you never get a sense of how long they're in the house, 
You never get a sense of how much time is passing at any point. They needed, like, time cards or date cards to come up on the screen at different times to allow us to know, like, okay, you know, the Warrens, the the reason why they're so settled in is because, you know, uh, a, a month has passed and they have had some light occurrences to where they do believe that this is happening, but nothing serious yet, you know, where they're not just going to say, hey, you know, we need to get the fuck out of here because, you know, we've got our own kid and our own family to to take care of. Um, I just, I think these are things that could have been easily worked on and fixed that they just didn't for whatever reason. Yeah, it's just because we have the whole thing about the, uh, the Warren's daughter talking about how, she misses them, but again, like you said, Gould, we don't know how long they've been over there. And it's like, you know, they could have used just dropped a line or something like that going, you know, well, we've, you know, been, been here for a week and we've seen this, this, and this, you know, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem that I had with not only this one, but the sequel as well. Um, and we're not going to get into the sequel, but it, it's the passages of time that they're not really too concerned with. Uh, you know, in the movies. It's just, you know, this is what happens following them to investigate the haunting to them, you know, basically saying, yes, you're absolutely being haunted and you need to go to a motel because this place isn't safe. Um, in actuality, the parents lived in the house from 1970 until 1980 before they finally decided to move out. So they were there for a whole 10 years. So it wasn't like they had this haunting and all of a sudden a year later, they're like, we got to get the fuck out. No, they were there for 10 years in real life. Mm. And in the movie, you never really get a sense of that. You know, it's just a passage of time, like the bullet said. Uh, from well, that the time kills the me, arrived, too, because they leave the house and they go to the motel, and then they're right back at the house again. So what the fuck was the purpose of going to the motel during that period of time? <laughs> well, that was also because Carolyn left the motel with two of the daughters, Christine and Nick. No, no, no. That's the second time they go to the motel. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, when they leave after that. The they time. go to the fucking motel <laughs> yeah. earlier in the film, and then, yeah, like, they, the next true. scenes with them, wow. they're back at the house again. And it was, like, is that I an can, editing yeah. issue? <laughs> yeah. I completely missed that. And then, you know, they had that one scene of, you know, the daughter being haunted by Bathsheba Sher- uh, Sherman who in the movie is supposedly a witch and a Satanist who killed one of her children and then eventually hung herself. I mean, you know, if you want to get the real story, just Google it, Bathsheba Sherman, because there's a lot of real stories about the woman. In the movie, she's a witch and a Satanist, and she killed her child and hung herself. And that's who's plaguing this house. Um, And that's who ends up plaguing, you know, the daughter um, and haunting her. And that's why the ones have to run home and protect their daughter. And it's just, it's really kind of muddled in the third act. I felt it just seemed like a mismatch of, of scenes at the end. Well, it was just kind of cut there's also, towards the end. Well, I mean, that's the thing too, because there are specific, there's something specific that happens during that end sequence. Um, the exorcism in particular, that makes yeah. me question if indeed it was, uh, Bathsheba, whatever the name was. Bathsheba. 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 <laughs> <laughs> You got it. <laughs> and something. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, but that's what I said. It was kind of. But yeah, we'll, we'll get know, there. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, but I just felt like it was kind of a mismatch towards going towards the third act. I felt like they were just kind of. They didn't know where they were in this movie. Like, they just kept going with the back and forth and everything like that. Like, they just. To get to the finale, they just didn't know where they were at. And I felt like that was kind right. of a detriment to the movie. 
but, well, but it was also, also they, because they were trying to connect so many different spirits mm-hmm. and entities to this. You know, the Bathsheba character, her curse led to all these different people killing their children. And, you know, you got Rory, who's a child ghost, who is supposedly friends with one oh, of the kids. Yeah. And then, you know, you got got the, the, the mother of that child, and then you got the mother of another kid. And, you know, the the thing that killed me is that they can, in the movie, they connected Bathsheba to Mary Town, Town Eastie, who was, yep. uh, she was one of the people killed during the Salem Witch Trials. Um but she also is somebody that they pretty much have straight out said that there was no way she was a witch. You know, like this was a very pious woman involved with like the church and everything. Like all of it has been completely like dismissed, like to, to the point of like, you know, they back then they even came out and said like, Hey, we were wrong. But, like, now I guess, you know, the, the town is looking to get, like, monuments put up to these people because they're just realizing that everything was just obviously fucked up that, that was done at that time. Um, oh. So for them to, to connect it, I feel like it's like they're kind of perpetuating that idea of a woman that wasn't a witch to say that she was. Well, like I said about that, Sheba Sherman. You know, they said that in the movie she was a witch and a Satanist and killed her kids and hung herself, and that's far from the truth. Um, you know, it's, that's not who she was in real life. And that's, you know, there's plenty of research that you could do on Google about the actual woman. But in the movie purposes, they have to create this evil entity, and that's who Bathsheba Sherman is in this movie, um, especially with the scene with Officer Drew. And I like that scene when he's in the house and he sees that woman you know, mm-hmm. screaming at him. I'm like, it was good. It was a good kind of scare. But, again, it kind of fell flat, you know, because they just kept trying to go at it again and again with this weird spirit kind of haunting Officer Drew and having Ed run in and go, what's going on? Oh, there was a spirit, and, you know, but they didn't capture it. <laughs> <laughs> it's touching me. Where did it touch you? In Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's where it but did I'm- it. That's where everything happened. But I thought they also, like, left a big plot hole open because, like the ghoul said, we have the moment where they break out the map and talk about how all of this was her property, you know, and the the property was broken up, and we had random people on other pieces of property killing their children, but there's no talk about hauntings on any of the other properties. No, no. That's the real life, too. I mean, yeah, I, I, I got to... <laughs> I got to not talk about the real life case too much because I can go all day with the, the real case about how there wasn't really anything happening. But in this, in this case, in the movie, they say that there was no hauntings anywhere else, just in this one property. Um, and then Lorraine gets trapped in the cellar um, and they have that whole sequence with her facing off against the, the demon of Bathsheba Sherman. While Nancy well, gets if, attacked. We take, it was a, if we take what we yeah. see in the movie to heart, Maybe the reason why it's only happening at this location is because that's where she hung herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, it is. Um, so that would be the spot the with the most energy. Yeah, yeah or the most. You know, where where her spirit would be strongest, where you know hauntings and whatnot would be would be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to me, I, I don't know how I feel about Carolyn getting possessed uh, in the film. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, I guess for a movie it works, 
But at the same time, I just I kind of felt like it was a way for the writers to basically try to get into this third act and to wrap up this film. Um, I didn't really see the point, but I guess, you know, to kind of rev it up, you know, they have to have Carolyn be possessed by the spirit of Bathsheba Sherman uh, and try to take her own kids back to the house to sacrifice them. To me, it was kind of lazy. I kind of wish it didn't go that way, but I could see why an audience would love it because it's, it's, you know, interesting, but I don't know what you guys thought. Monkey? Uh, Yeah, it's just, you know, uh, again, I felt like it was a little bit sloppy because we had all of the haunted house stuff. Now we're going to switch gears and turn it into a, um, you know, a straight up possession instead of a haunting. You know, it's like, you know, make up your mind. What are we doing here? But at the same time, it's like I could see why everyone was was getting all excited about this because again, like you said, you know, going into the third act, you got to shift into another gear and keep the momentum going. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 like I said, for audiences, it makes sense. Um, it's just, and they set it up, kind of in a way, with bruises appearing on her body, and Carolyn thinking that's an iron deficiency, and she's just got to take some pills. But it was one of those things where it, she had bruises, so we're supposed to assume that's what meant that that she was going to possess her in that third act. I mean, you know, Google, what did you think about it? Well, again, this is where I think if you were paying attention at the beginning of the movie when they were talking about what actually had possessed the Annabelle doll, uh, Mm -hmm. or the fact that the Annabelle doll wasn't actually possessed, but that, you know, a demonic entity had attached itself to it. But, you know, the true purpose of that demonic entity was to possess a person. Um, You know, I think that's, that's what was going on here. You know, whatever the entity was attached to, which I guess, you know, being that at the end of the movie, they take the, the toy um, back to the house. So maybe that's, you know, what began everything. Uh, I don't know, because the kid oh, finds yeah, that toy and then everything everything goes from there. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the demonic entity was attached to that, and then therefore, you know, that that's how we end up where we're at. But yeah, it's, it was set up that somebody was going to get possessed. I mean, I think it just flows from one right to the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's the interesting thing you brought up too, is that that music box uh, that uh, April finds, you know, by the tree where supposedly that she hung herself. Uh, when you open the music box and you look in the mirror, you know, Lori will appear behind you and they showed that one scene with Lorraine playing with it. You see the boy standing behind her. That's not actually there. But that's the haunted artifact, and that's what the whole museum that the Warrens have is based on. You know, these haunted artifacts that cause the house to be haunted. So they take the haunted artifact and they put it in a museum so no more haunted. So they have to have some kind of physical thing that they could bring into their museum to say this is what cleaned it up. And so this music box is the origin for the haunting. So we're going to put it on a museum, bless it once a month, it's done. You know, this house is clear. This is this house which, is clean. Which, Music box, which, not tuna box. Music box. Yeah. Which which led to the whole people under the stairs sequence that all in between the walls and stuff like that. Because again, how fucking thick are these walls? When, when they're looking around, you know, and he's banging on the walls, going, "Where are you, honey?" You know, you, you can see the walls. They're all they're like only a foot thick. It's yeah. Well, you had to have that speaker, Ed, to be uh, scared, Again, you know. doing what I do for a living, 
Um, in older homes, uh, specifically balloon frame homes, which is what that house was. That's why when she goes down the wall, like in between the walls, there's no wood going across ways to cut off from the basement. So you can, that's how like in some jobs for older houses, we can run wiring real easy because you don't have anything obstructing you from attic to basement. Um, and there are cases I've been in houses, uh, especially in like the Rumson area where you've got some of these large houses and there is enough space in between walls to, to where you could drop down completely through. Especially if you're a mm-hmm. small framed person. So there you go, monkey. <laughs> okay. It could possibly happen. But I mean that's the whole plot of Bad Ronald, which is another movie I like from the eighties, where a guy lives in the walls. So it's possible. You know, like I said, in the old houses, like the Gullet said. Um I mean that scene didn't bother me too much. It was just one of those scenes where Lorraine's in peril and you have to have Ed come to her rescue and save her, which is what we see again in Conjuring Two. Um, but with this movie, it worked. I didn't mind it. Um, I actually did really like the exorcism sequence because I thought it did harken back to the old school movies, like the Gore talked about at the beginning of the episode. Ex- uh, you know, uh, Exorcist, uh, The Omen, it had a very, very cool 70s kind of vibe to it. This movie takes place mm-hmm. in the 70s, but at the same time, it just had a very cool 70s vibe. The covering Carol with a sheet so that she couldn't look at any of them. You know, she covered in blood. I mean, it was, it was great. For what it was, I mean, it was effective, and it caught me watching. You know, it got my attention. The the, the chair floating up and then flipping upside down and stuff like that. That was, that was, was a good cool effect. too. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and Ed having to, you know, become the exorcist, <laughs> even though he's not, and you know, he's not allowed to, and he's only allowed to assist. In this situation, he has to step forward and do the exorcism, which you know, I thought he handled it really well. For some of it's only assisted. Oh, I mean, I think that that is part of where like my complaint comes in on it. Um, mm-hmm. One, if you're, you know, if you're not a fully ordained priest trained in doing it, can it right. be done? Um, number one. Number two, I mean, this exorcism. As we near the latter portion of it, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's only because I'm going by what I've seen with exorcisms, you know, in just about every exorcism-based movie. Uh, But, you know, when it comes down to the point where he is to, uh, you know, obviously to get the demon to to whatever, let go and all that shit, you have to be able to get it to, to tell you its name. Um, but that was the point, is that it has to tell you its name. And he calls it its name. It never tells them its name. Which You're is right. what makes me yeah. doubt that it is Bathsheba at all. And I think that it's one of those cases where the demon is, you know, still present. And the idea is that, you know, that Bathsheba was not the entity. She was just another person possessed by said entity who killed their child and and all of that. I mean, that's a good point that you bring up. But then again, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a good point that you bring up. But at the same time, I don't know if that was a mistake by the filmmakers. The fact that Ed called the spirit by its name Bathsheba and that was what he needed to do to complete the exorcism. I don't know if it was a mistake. I mean, it might have been intentional that, like the Gullet said, it's not the spirit of Bathsheba, it's somebody else. Um, but you know, when you think about it, it really wasn't Ed 
that made it end. You know, it wasn't the exorcism conducted by Ed that kind of brought a conclusion to everything. You know, it was actually Lorraine who stepped in to kind of be the one to save the day. It's, you know, weird in a way that that's, you know, her stepping in, but I guess it works for the narrative of her talking well, Ed, to I think Karen the as a mother's mother. Weakened it. I think Ed weakened it to the point to where Lorraine could get through to uh, to Lily Taylor and, and have an so? effect. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, that's a good... I mean, what do you think, Mucky, about, about the, you know, the exorcism sequence? No, I agree, though, effect. was... Yeah, no, it's just that, you know, Ed was doing his bit. He sat there and knocked it down a couple of pegs, but then Lorraine came in with her X-Men shit, you know, to, you know... For, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Forced Carolyn to, you know, remember. Is that what he did? <laughs> Is he getting possessed now? <laughs> no, but, you know, for, you know, like, nudging and getting Carolyn to remember the family, remember what's important, and then her having used her strength to expel the demon from the body herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it, you can go either way. I mean, I don't know if that was the intention. I don't know if it was one of those things where you could think about it, whether it was him getting it. But I thought it was kind of one of those cheesy kind of sequences where Lorraine's talking to Carolyn and saying, remember your children. Remember all the good times that you had. Do it for your kids. And all of a sudden she's remembering and fighting off the spirit, you know, because they're both mothers and they both have kids. And, you know, it's, I don't know. It was kind of a, a weird kind of way to end that exorcism sequence. But I felt like, they had to end it somehow, so why not do it this way? Yeah, but we liked it in Friday the 13th Part 4. Jason, remember. <laughs> yeah. Remember, Jason? Yeah, but in that movie, he hacked the shit out of the serial killer. So, at least we had a nice payoff. Die! Die, Jason! Yeah, we had a nice little that, payoff there. That is actually my biggest problem, I guess, with this. And again, I mean, I know, we're based on a true story. Blah, 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 blah. Um... <laughs> She needed to die, Carolyn. Yes. Um, somebody I, I needed think, to die. Know, somebody <laughs> needed to die. I mean, it's a fucking horror movie. The only thing that died was the goddamn dog. Um, and some birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a pigeon. Yeah, uh, fucking movie's all about animal cruelty. Uh, but, <laughs> no, like, I think, you know, ultimately, if if you wanted to make a, a good cinematic, like, you know, storytelling here, you end up her sacrificing herself to save her children. Mm-hmm. Knowing that the I only way to get away from this, this entity is to, to destroy herself. And look at the exorcist mm. with Father Karras sacrificing mm-hmm. himself to save Regan. It worked. You know, he did the ultimate mm-hmm. sacrifice. Killing himself to save Regan. And this one, it's basically you just have to tell her that you're a good mom and that you care about your kids. <laughs> it was it was weak to me. Like I don't know, just the way I felt about it, you know. But it, she definitely should have died. I think it would have made a bigger impact. Although, like you had said, it's supposed to be based on the true story, but you know. But you know, you're taking liberties, so why not make her die? You know. But I guess the kids of the real life parents probably would have objected to that. That's exactly what I'm thinking too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they they might be like, listen, you know what? If you're putting us in a movie, you can't have me fucking kill myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, care about your fucking too. story. <laughs> yeah, 
Simply because uh, Andrea Perrin, who was the oldest daughter, both in the movie and in her life, she ended up writing a book called House of Light, House of Darkness, which was all about the haunting of their house and how the, the Warrens were involved. She was okay with the filmmaking of it. You know, she felt like they were taking liberties, but it was okay. So I'm sure if they killed her mom off, she'd be like, that never happened. Like, you know, my mom just died and her causes. She never got possessed, but... If you're okay with that, then you're okay with the possession sequence, too, which never happened in her real-life case either. So why not kill the mom off? But, you know. What? You, you, you mean Ed didn't perform an exorcism there? No, he didn't. <laughs> he was only there for a day or two, and then they were told to leave. <laughs> but in this movie, it's amazing. He orders car engine parts, and, you know, yeah, he's there. I, I, I thought... Are you sure you're not mistaking the Enfield case in England with some of oh, this? No, the because case I know a whole other issue. I know the whole thing with yeah. the Enfield cases. Yeah, they got told to leave pretty much. Like they were only there yeah. for oh, yeah. like a day or two, and then they were gone. And they in both cases they were told to leave. Around it. <laughs> yeah, both cases they were told to leave. And the Enfield haunting, they were there for two days, and then they were told to leave because they weren't helping. But in the Conjuring 2, they were there for like two weeks. They basically fucking lived there in the movie, you know, taking care of the oh, family. That's, they were being that's what together. they did, obviously. They moved into people's homes to help them. <laughs> in the movie verse. Because um, they don't want to live in the, their own house with that fucked up museum. <laughs> yeah, you know, with all the evil artifacts that they have in their basement. No, they yeah, just in both cases. <laughs> they just leave yeah, grandma and their cases. daughter in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like I said, Ghoul, in both cases, they were told to leave. <laughs> they were there. They were like, hey, this place is haunted. And they're like, yeah, you can leave now. Like, they didn't do anything to stop the haunting. They didn't clean either of the houses. It just it stopped on its own. And the, the, the Enfield haunting, it turned out that the girls are making a lot of it up anyway. So, But that's a whole other story for another day. Um, when this movie closes out, again, I have a hard time, like the Ghoul said, with time passage. Because when the movie ends, they're putting the music box on the shelf, and they're like, ah, you know, we, another case in the books. All right, high five. That's fine. But they high say, five. oh. Number one. <laughs> but Lorraine's <laughs> like, hey, by the way, we got a call of a case in Long Island. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's the Amityville case. So what fucking year are we in? This movie takes place in 1971. The Amityville case didn't take place until 1976. Where the fuck are we in this timeline? Like, well, that's obvi- obviously we've moved to 1976. You know, I think, like we said, the movie does a poor job of showing the passage of time. I think we're supposed to realize that, like, all of these things that went down happened over the course of, like, maybe a year or two. You know, I think we're, when it starts in 71, I don't think that is where we're at when they finally get in touch with the Warrens. You know what I mean? I think there was a stretch of time that passes before they get in touch with the Warrens and before the Warrens ever get there. And that's my problem with the time, you know, like I said, because at the the ending of the movie, they're putting that box up on the shelf, and it made it seem like it just happened. Like, they just got back from Rhode Island, and they're putting that music box on the shelf, and all of a sudden they got a new case in Long Island. So it would have been nice if they had said a couple years later or something like that, because in real life, that haunting in Amityville didn't happen until 76. So, mm-hmm. you know, move up the time a little bit. Give us a, give us a place card. <laughs> you know, 
with Ed looking at his artifacts and sitting that music box up on the shelf and going, ah, I remember the parent case. Nice. So I just took it down, you know, putting it, putting it back. I mean, maybe that's what we're supposed to think. Maybe we're supposed to think that, you know, he brought it to class, you know, to show the uh, the students and whatnot. That would have been a great way to end it, honestly. I mean, that would have been a great way to end it. The show, like, 1975, 1976, he's in a classroom, and he has that music box in a box, and he's like, hey, let me tell you about the parent case, and then that's how you kind of end the movie. But now they kind of end it where it's like, ah, we got another one. Okay, Ghostbusters. Get your photon <laughs> on. There's only one one. <laughs> yeah. They should have ended it with the Ghostbusters team. I would have loved that. But no, they didn't. You know, they just ended with the Long Island and that's it. Which, um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with Conjuring 3. Because I know they said they want to make it. But they were kind of saying maybe Amityville. But Amityville was done in Conjuring 2 at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, they, sh- they, they show that at the Amityville. beginning of Conjuring 2. And I kind of felt like that was a bad way to start it because I would rather that be a movie. Like, I would rather that be Conjuring 3 rather than kind of throw it away in part 2. So it kind of gives away to part 3. Well, maybe they're tapping into different rights there. Well, not just that. I think the fact is the Warrens have a lot of other stories anyway. Um, I mean, as of right now, there are 19 films within the Conjuring, within the Amityville like setting, you know, Unfortunately, I, I, think, yeah. <laughs> I think to make another film, like even if you're going to call it the conjuring, you know, and to stick it into Amityville lore is just like, nah, you know what, what they, what they gave us with the little touches that they did in, in conjuring two, I think is enough, you know? And, and like we spoke about when we talked about the nun, you know, these movies have legs. They make a lot of money for very little budget, and it is going to continue until it is no longer making big money. And, and I can't see I mean, I'm definitely seeing a Nun 2. Well, yeah, until DVD. I could definitely see a Nun 2. I'm sure they'll come up with another Annabelle movie eventually. Um, Conjuring 3, um, sure, is being developed as we speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these movies make bank. I can't argue that. You know, whether you like it's them or not. It's kind of on hiatus. It's interesting. Fucking Conjuring 3 is kind of on, like, hiatus right now for whatever reason. Um, I know right? James Wan has expressed, you know, like, some interest in doing it. But then there's talks that they may have another director. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's kind of nothing, like, in the news as far as, like, any any true follow-up in the Conjuring franchise. I mean, obviously, uh, I know they have, uh, have a couple things in the works, though. You have... Uh, give me a, a minute and I don't know, discuss something. Don't forget the Annabelle and Chucky crossover movie they're going to do. <laughs> no, I'm sure that's coming. With Puppet Master thrown in there. That would be a three-way fight. Puppet Master versus Annabelle versus Chucky. But, I mean, it'll be interesting. Uh, crooked um, Man. That's what it is. From The Conjuring 2, they've got a Crooked Man movie coming. Another spinoff? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Might as well just make spinoffs from now on with The Conjuring movies. You know, it seems well, like Annabelle part, and then you have Crooked Man. Well, the best part about the spinoffs is, is none of it is based on any kind of true event. So it could be a fully none. crafted fictional story. Death could occur because you don't have real-life people sitting there saying, no, I didn't die. <laughs> yeah, well, Except for Ed in real life, who was actually dead. So, but he has yet to come back to give us his thoughts on the Conjuring movies. Five so we're still waiting for that to happen. I wonder if yeah. Lorraine talks so, to him. 
I would have to imagine she does if she actually believes in that stuff. I, I don't know. But, you know, uh, Lorraine Warren, I actually saw, the last time I saw her was on a show on A&E called Paranormal State with uh, Ryan Buell and the Paranormal Research Society based out of Pennsylvania. Um, and she would show up in those episodes, and they're like, oh, this haunting is so fucking bad. We have to call in Lorraine Warren. Lightning crash. Thunder. <laughs> Lorraine Warren shows up, and she's like, oh, my God, child, this place is haunted. You have to do something. And then she'll just leave. <laughs> you know, it's like, thanks for showing up. She, she does show up in this movie as well. Um, she is there she in the audience yeah. during one of the, uh, the second classroom scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does show up physically, but yeah, I mean, it, for, like I said, to wrap it up, uh, The Conjuring, to me, it's a mediocre movie, but I get why people think it's entertaining. It's a haunted house movie going back to the old school haunted house movies of the 70s and the 80s, like Poltergeist, like Amityville Horror, um, and I think that's why it's so successful, because it's PG-13, but as a PG-13 movie, it's effective. I mean, it doesn't have to be R. It's one of those cases where... This movie works as a PG-13 movie. You don't need tits. You don't need blood. You don't need drug use. Just give us a couple of good scares in the house and have people come along to investigate, and I think you got a good movie. Yeah. Believable characters and relationships, and, and people are happy, you know? That's it. All right. So to wrap up, uh, thank you, Monkey, for joining us tonight. Uh, I was glad to have you back. I know the doc wasn't with us. Uh, I know he did tell us through group chat what his uh, movie choice is going to be, so I'll be uh, announcing that on Monday. Um, but it looks like you it's a movie called it oh. a movie uh, called Ah uh, Zombies. Yes, it's a movie <laughs> called Ah uh, Zombies. Apparently, it's on Amazon Prime, which I do not have, but I'll find a way to watch it. But it's a movie called Ah uh, Zombies. Uh, it's a comedy movie featuring zombies, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, but. I will make the official announcement on Monday on the Facebook page if that is indeed our full-fledged pick for the doc next week. Uh, so once again, thank you, Mike, for joining us, and we will see you next time. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen, for a fun-filled episode, and, and I will see you next time. I'm out. <laughs> All right. All right. Go, why don't you hit us with a plug before we close up shop for the evening? Uh, again, everybody, get over to the NJ Horicon this weekend at Go Boat Atlantic City. Go meet some guests. Hang out with our friends. Say hello to everybody and uh, and have yourselves a damn good time. Um, and to my friends who will be there, man, have fun, people. We will see you at the next one. Uh, as far as plug goes, you know, check out Bonfire Beat Designs uh, Facebook page and on Etsy is one word. All kinds of jewelry for your your guy friend, your girlfriend, your pan friend, whatever the hell you want that friend to be. You know, if you got somebody you're pining after. Get them something. You know what? Nothing gets you in somebody's pants faster. That's right. <laughs> Nothing gets you in the pants faster. And something from that shop, so check it out. Um, the Tunabox. GoFundMe campaign. That's right, Tunabox. The GoFundMe campaign for Jennifer Rubin is still going on. That link is on our Facebook page to help out Annie, Jennifer Rubin's sister, uh, dealing with medical costs with the MS that she's going through. So contribute what you can. Every little bit counts. Um, I know that there's a tentative podcast I'm going to be a part of coming up soon. Uh, it's slated to be, uh, I think, next month. So when I get more details on that, uh, it's going to be me, Jennifer Rubin, and our friend Jonathan Steele of Crazy Train Radio uh, doing a little live podcast to raise some more funds. So once I get those details, I'll be giving it to you guys. As always, I'm your old pal, the King of Horror, Andy G, saying thank you so much for joining us for this Conjuring episode. We'll see you next week, potentially, for Ah Zombies. 
Uh, so keep uh, America strong. Zombies. <laughs> yeah. Not our real monsters. Nope, not that, guys. It's our zombies. So Maybe we'll see like what happens. Porn, you know. Yeah, I would love to see that if it's good. I mean, I know it's out there. Burning Angel, the porn site, does a lot of zombie movies. <laughs> but, uh, until next we meet, we hope you have a great week ahead. We hope you're excited for the next week's episode. We'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Stay scared.